0: I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, the show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. When young Ruby Ishimaru, her sister and stepmother, are sent away from Hawaii to a mainland internment camp in 1942, Ruby packs her treasures, photographs, seashells, and the books of Laura Ingalls Wilder. And on the ship, Ruby finds comfort in Laura's adventures as she and her family sail into the frightening unknown. On the other side of the world, the unknown is also bearing down on Japan where Koji Matsuo watches the country rally for war. The stories of Ruby and Koji, which will eventually intersect, are rooted in Constance and Kent's Matsumoto's own family histories. The novel they wrote together is titled Of White Ashes, and they join us from Willington, Delaware. Welcome you both. It's good to have you on. Hello, Carrie.
1: Thank you for having us.
2: Carrie, we're delighted to be here.
0: Constance, um, I love those details. A little girl having to choose among favorite possessions and realizing that just like Laura Ingalls, she's headed into a wilderness. It made for a very wrenching scene. And I thought we could begin there. So Ruby, her sister and her stepmother are being shipped to an internment camp. They're part of what will be more than 125,000 Japanese Americans who were sent to these camps. I want you to tell me a little bit about imagining that scene where she can only take a few things and the family is going off never knowing if they're going to return. Talk to me about conceiving that scene.
1: Sure. Well, the the Japanese Americans were only able to take what they could carry. And uh, some of that comes from Kent's mom and, and conversations with her about what it was like to leave her home and, and pack up her belongings and how Um, A woman in the island community had made her and her sisters, because she's actually one of four sisters, not two in in reality, Mm -hmm. uh, dresses all cut from the same cloth. And, you know, just the warmest thing that they had to take with them were little white sweaters Mm. going to Arkansas in the dead of winter. Kent, um, I thought we
0: could talk a little bit about the American history about this before we we delve into your family history. I, I went back and read some of the documentation that accompanied Roosevelt's uh, executive order that Japanese Americans would be sent to internment camps, and and the lieutenant general in charge of the Western Defense Command, John Dewitt, was in favor of this and wrote, "The Japanese race is an enemy race." And while many second and third generation Japanese born on U.S. soil possessed of U.S. citizenship have become Americanized, the racial strains are undiluted. Tell me how you interpret what DeWitt and what many people in the American government believed.
2: I would characterize it initially, Carrie, as war hysteria initially. I I think if if folks were not in the midst of a war, I would like to think that if General DeWitt and Roosevelt were not faced with this um, terrible calamity, terrible world situation, they might have fought differently. But that's not what history tells us. Instead, I think there is a sense of this hysteria, this, this um, reacting, if you will, to people who look different, people who Really weren't part of the United States assimilating part um, until at, at least at that time, and so it was very reactionary and and also what turned out to be very hurtful.
0: Mm-hmm. Connie, I mean, what we're what we're seeing there is even in the text of that that statement. There's an acknowledgement that these are people who are U.S. citizens mm-hmm. and they have become Americanized. That's the word that they used. And yet the loyalty was in question. I know we've seen that through American history since then, too. But, but I'm curious about what you see as well, Connie, in, in the words that were used in that order. And again, that a lot of Americans believed, I guess.
1: Yeah. And this Commander DeWitt was quite a character. One of the things that he's famous for saying is a Japs a Jap. So hmm. he didn't care if you were American or a Japanese national or an infant or you know, a 30 year old or an 80 year old, mm-hmm. a Jap is a Jap, and we're not gonna tolerate Japs on the West Coast at this point in time. So I, I think it's shameful. And as Ken said, it, it's grounded in hysteria. And sadly, I, I think it created more hysteria for the people on the West Coast mm-hmm. and other areas to see that this could happen, that such injustice could happen to an American citizen.
0: Yeah. I, I wonder if you both went back and uh, I know you were delving into the history. Were you reading some of the the documentation? What, what Tell me what you were learning as you researched the novel about, about how Americans felt at that point and what the government was saying.
1: We conducted a great deal of, of research for this book and we, we went into the thought and culture of not only the United States, but also uh, Japan. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, it was clearly divided. And what's sad is that it's divided yet again. And that makes for a, a very scary time for us here in, in this country. But you know the the political environment sh- shifted dramatically too. Uh, the the San Francisco Examiner at the time said things like "hurt them off and give them the inside room of the Badlands." Wow! And who would have who would imagine that they would say something like that today?
2: Carrie, yeah. I'm sorry to add to what Connie was saying as part as of our, of our research, and we visited the the sites as. We think historical novels should be researched, so our novel is grounded in historical accuracy. But of the many museums that we went to, I think it was an exhibit at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., there were the the buttons that, that people could wear that said Jap hunting, open season, or words to that effect. And when you see the actual buttons that people wore then, and there were signs, of course, as well, it's just a, a slap in the face, if you will, and you realize that today the word "Jap" has, has taken on um, completely pejorative term, as I'm sure it did then as well. But it's part of it was part of our research to actually physically go see these these artifacts, if you will, mm-hmm. and then have the same try to put ourselves in the same era and and see those things as a Japanese American myself. I look Japanese. I I lived in Japan, and the thought of me being the target of that button, I, th- I think, again, very offensive.
0: You know, Kent, I thought it was interesting that uh, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt disagreed with the policy at, of internment, and she eventually went quite public with it, not at first, but eventually she she let her disagreement be known. Did that end up mattering? do you think, in the way this was carried out?
2: The answer, I think, the short answer is no. And as we know from history, that Eleanor Roosevelt was a powerful figure in her own right and one that often doesn't get the kind of coverage uh, that so so richly deserved, that she so richly deserved. But no, I don't, I don't think so. It, it made one bit of difference, and I'll take it back more to a time when uh, men did control the politics, did control business uh, in our country.
0: Yeah. So, Ken, I want to talk a bit about your your own family history and sure. how, how that influences the way the novel unfolds. Your mother was incarcerated at the Jerome, Arkansas internment camp. Is that right?
2: That is correct.
0: So... It, it, what kind of, first I'm curious about what kind of stories you heard as you were growing up about that experience and whether you then have some of the diaries or the journals that she was keeping about what happened and what it was like?
2: Carrie, the, the very short answer is I, I did not know a lot directly from my mother about that time there. And if I may digress just briefly here, my parents did not talk to me or my sister or my brother about those war years, perhaps generational, perhaps cultural, perhaps they didn't want to burden us children uh, with what they had to go through, or perhaps it was just the trauma of it all. So direct answer to your direct question is I did not get a lot of firsthand account from when she, she went there. And to be clear, she was not um, rounded up. She uh, was living at the time on the island of Kauai. Mm -hmm. And uh, she and her parents, my grandparents, chose to reunite on the mainland when it became apparent that – Ruby and Ruby, my mother and her three sisters. <laughs>
0: Ruby's the character.
2: Ruby's yes. the character, and my stepmother uh, did not have the breadwinner, my grandfather at the time, so they chose to go to a main uh, an incarceration camp on the mainland, and Jerome was that camp initially.
0: Wow. So, so this was more of a um, they saw where this was headed. They didn't know how they would support themselves. And they decided to voluntarily, again, though, seeing what was happening around them, but voluntarily they went to this internment camp. Is that, is that it?
2: That is essentially it. But to be clear, my grandfather, my mother's father, was not with the family. He right. was uh, initially arrested the day after Pearl Harbor was attacked. He was taken to a jail. And then he was transported uh, to the, the mainland in Lordsburg, New Mexico, hmm. where he wrote letters back to the family. Hmm. And it wasn't necessarily my mother and her sister's decision at all. It was the decision of my, my grandfather.
0: I see. Oh, that they should go to the internment camp. Correct. Okay. So, Connie, then that leaves as you're, you know, creating the structure for the novel, your um, creating characters that are drawn from Kent's family history, but you're also, you know, creating a whole kind of fictional world for them. I'm, I'm interested in how you knit that together. How'd you thought about that?
1: Um, I have a, a business background and so I, I'm very strategic in the way that I think mm-hmm. and used that background to help me um, structure the novel and to um, you know, think about all of the components and, and how they fit together. So the timeline, the world events, the true events that really happen, they underpin the whole structure of the book. Um uh, you think about it like a tent. You know, what are the tent poles holding up the tent? That's what these big events are: Pearl Harbor, um, the incarceration, the bombing of, of Hiroshima, all of these things. And then the challenge was to take what we knew from family history, what we knew of Kent's parents' personalities and their values and their belief systems, and weave that into a story that created a world and scenes where the reader might experience what it felt like to be this 12-year-old girl Going off to Jerome, Arkansas, or this 16-year-old boy in the city of Hiroshima when a bomb is dropped on his city. Mm-hmm. So there, uh, it started out with some pretty detailed worksheets, you know, looking at these tent poles and the timeline and the overarching goals for certain sections of the book. Mm-hmm. And then individual scene development and these worksheets became flip charts. And then the flip charts were oh taped gosh. together and became <laughs> wallpaper. And then <laughs> Kent and I would spend time brainstorming effective scenes on what kind of a world can we paint using our imagination? What might they have experienced that we don't know about, but that based on our research, we do know about from other people who experienced it.
0: Kent, in some ways, did you, uh, again, acknowledging that your parents and your mother did not share a lot of detail with you about their wartime experiences, I mean, did that leave you with a sense that there was much more of a story to be told to the broader reading public, Um, and and also, in some ways, a story to be told, perhaps— yourself and your family about what this might have been like?
2: I don't think I had a deep appreciation for what my parents went through. And, And I know that sounds embarrassing, and it is. But the reason why I say that is because they were just mom and dad. They were just mom and dad. And they wanted for me and my brother and sister to grow up and to be educated, to go on and have successful careers and raise healthy families and and as they um, aspired to do, to live the American dream. So they did not offer parts of that, their history unless we asked, or we lived in Japan, so we visited Hiroshima many times, mm-hmm. and they shared certain things. It wasn't until Connie and I really started getting into the research and really started getting into the discussions that we would have many of which during COVID when we were together um, in our home together and just by ourselves and not doing other stuff. It was only then, Carrie, that I really became to to appreciate all that my parents had lived through, Mm. all that they had sacrificed, all that they had, I, I won't say hid from us, but not necessarily put out there in a look what we had to go through mm-hmm. back when I was your age I never heard anything mm-hmm. like that we had the distinct um, honor really Carrie of going to Tule Lake California where my mother and her family were moved to halfway through the war for various reasons and we went there with mom and dad oh. this was I forget 2010 Connie will correct me of course for, for the accuracy there, but we were able to walk through Tule Lake and it, there's not much there, Carrie. There's a, a smokestack from the um, from the kitchen that's remains and there's a plaque, but there's no museum or anything like that in Tule Lake, California. And yet we walked around the remains of the barracks that were still standing, the fields that were there. And we're able to do that with um, probably another hundred or so pilgrims that, that all mm-hmm. made the trip. So that was during my parents' lifetime. Uh, We launched our book, this book of white ashes, in Arkansas, where my mother was first incarcerated, as you pointed out, Mm -hmm. in Jerome, Arkansas. And of course, they're not with us today. uh, But there we were accompanied by 200 uh, other pilgrims. And again, we walked where my mother uh, grew up, essentially, for a year and a half of her life. And then in Tule Lake, as I said, 13 years ago Mm in California. So it was then, and I think I'm answering your question now, it's then that I really began to appreciate all that my mother and my father had gone through.
0: Kent, um, what do you remember of the day that uh, you and others were walking through what remains of Thule Lake? I mean, do you remember expressions on your mother's faces or things she might have observed about that.
2: What I remember was the barrenness of the land and thinking as I do as I'm surrounded by today's world where I have we have everything at our fingertips. I mean we have delivery from the overnight delivery services if we want them, but to be to grow up and spend two form what turned out to be two very formative years of any person's life, those that's what struck me the most. That's the feeling that I that I walked away then, Carrie, and that I walked away most recently in May, walking around uh, Jerome, Arkansas, where similarly, there's nothing there. Yeah. There's just an oblique there.
0: Wow. Connie, what was your experience of that?
1: Similar to Kent's, but I distinctly remember watching... Uh, Kent's mom, her name was Reiko, Reiko Adate Matsumoto. And she was celebrating her high school reunion at the time. Mm. And I remember her having fun with her friends from so long ago. And I remember her agreeing to um, sit for her oral history to be recorded, which Mm -hmm. we have a copy of. It's it's on um, a CD. And that's something that she hadn't done before, and so I think that, you know, despite the the showing of I'm having a good time, I'm glad to be here, I'm thrilled that my family's with me here for the first time,
2: mm-hmm.
1: was this sense of um, reckoning for her that now I'm ready to talk about what happened to me and I'm going to talk about it publicly.
0: I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas, and I'm in conversation with Constance and Kent Matsumoto about their novel, Of White Ashes. As you can hear as our conversation develops, that much of the structure and some of the detail of the novel are drawn from Kent's family history. His mother was... Um, I guess voluntarily went to an internment camp. Uh, and many, many Japanese Americans were sent to internment camps after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And much of the novel unfolds inside the internment camps. But the the action also takes place on the other side of the world as um, as war fever takes over Japan and the approach of the drop of uh, the atomic bomb uh, occurs as well. So we're seeing dual action in Japan and also what's happening in the United States inside these internment camps. Connie, I was curious about, uh, there's a lot of detail about the camps, about the sanitation and the tents and the food and even the romances that that cropped up uh, while people were there Where did you go to learn all that? I mean, what were some of your important primary sources
1: for that? Well, the primary sources included Kent's mom's um, autograph book from Tully Lake, Mm -hmm. where her friends wrote very sweet things to her. It gave us a great deal of insight into who she was as a young girl and how her friends perceived her. Very smart, going places, somebody that's really with it and her high school yearbook. So some of your listeners may be surprised to know that there were high schools inside of the camps, and they tried to make these um, high schools as normal as they could be. So there's actually a a printed yearbook Hmm. that looks like any other yearbook, with the single photos of the students and the clubs and the sports that they're involved in. And of course, the your books are annotated by her friends that gave even even more insight, and then there were the things that she shared with with me. I was relentless and asking questions to both Kent's parents, and they began to open up to me a little bit at a time. I was so curious, and they they eventually welcomed it. And one of the ways that we did that my mother-in-law would buy books, uh, for example, Julie Otsuka's book, When the Emperor Was Divine, or Jamie Ford's book, On the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. And she would read it and then she would pass it along to me. And then after I read it, we would sit and talk about mm-hmm. what part of that had also been her experience. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that happened because I am not her child. Mm -hmm. And she didn't feel like she was burdening me with her past or her trauma, or if it was to educate me, or a little bit of both. And I tend to believe that it was a little bit of of both. But, you know, also lots and lots of of research um, between Hiroshima and the incarceration. We have over 120 sources And these are noted on spreadsheets. And the spreadsheet is about 200 pages long. And it's all sorted by the topic and the source and and the notes. And and then being in um, places where we can see these artifacts, the Japanese American Memorial Museum in Los Angeles, the um, National Archives pulling the family files mm-hmm. to see what was in there, including their medical records. Wow. And then um, other fiction books that I've read that picked up on fact. And, you know, how did those authors paint this? How can we do it a little differently?
0: Kenda, a couple questions for you about what uh, Constance has just said. Why, what, what's your sense about why... Uh, your mother was willing to be more open with Connie than she had you know than she had been with you and your siblings. Do you have one brother, a couple?
2: One brother and one sister okay and um, that, to answer your question about um, why Connie I, sometimes it does take an outsider uh, to to be able to write about a family. If I could just digress a a Mm -hmm. bit here, Carrie, we didn't Connie and I did not set out to write this book as co-authors. It it happened quite organically, as Connie said. She grew to know and love my parents after she met them, and she never wavered in her belief that "quote unquote" a book should be written about this because the the coincidence of or, or, or the just how, how often would you have a Hiroshima survivor, an American, meet and then marry an um, a incarceree, former incarceree Japanese-American. And so we initially hired a nonfiction writer to write my parents' story oh. because of, of this. And, and um, I'll shorthand this by saying my parents did meet with Charlie. And our version of the story is that my parents were borderline rude to Charlie and they just said let's have lunch <laughs> we saw Charlie just last week at a, a an author presentation and Charlie doesn't re, he's very kind he doesn't remember that way at all but he does remember <laughs> that he didn't didn't get the engagement if you will we then tried and hired a documentary filmmaker from Mill Valley California oh, wow. who agreed to fly out with a small crew sound and lighting guy and film and my parents uh, wanted nothing to do of that really and it was not a Yes, they they wanted nothing to do with it. And it was only because of Connie's persistence. And candidly, when my mother passed in 2016, my father was struggling with dementia, that Connie took the bold step and closed her business and jumped right in and started the research, the learning, and, and the writing, started the writing. And one more comment, if I may, For your listeners, uh, we have a tab on our website, matsumotobooks.com, under resources. And there are links to every one of the 100 plus uh, resources that Connie and I consulted. Um, So I invite your listeners, if they are interested in learning more or perhaps getting more involved, there's there's a rich, rich library, if you will, of resources on, on our website.
0: Kent, did you have the, the the second question? Here is did you have the sense that a lot of Americans, I don't know the, the the memories of what this was and what it means to to the history of of the United States was diminishing, or or Americans just didn't understand it? They didn't care. Why, beyond your family, why the commitment to you know, preserving this, and then putting it into a, you know, a fictional kind of Mm -hmm. uh, presentation.
2: Our goals and aspirations for the book, Carrie, are to engage readers' curiosity, to expand their knowledge of history and historical events. There's a, in addition to the facts and figures and dry historical stuff, if you will, that I frankly enjoy reading about, uh, we wanted to generate empathy, for people of other races and cultures than perhaps the majority of Americans, as well as people around the world, just because we are all so different, human beings are. And then also to remind readers of our world's fragility—that's the nuclear, nuclear destruction part of mm-hmm. the novel, my father's story, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I do think that um, American students—I'm focusing on what I know about—and that is American. Uh, history, if you will, or what's taught in the classrooms, there should be more than just a paragraph. And our hope is that there, people, and and ideally teachers, and um, others will want to read the book, principally because it is fiction and not because it's just dry facts and figures. And that will, as I said at the outset, engage their curiosity, perhaps to learn more. Since we've Um, launched the book and released the book, we've heard from so many people that say, I had no idea, and then fill in the blank. I knew Pearl Harbor was attacked, but I didn't know what happened after that. I knew there was this incarceration. Absolutely correct. And and I get that, Carrie. I I really do. I mean, there's just so much to learn in this world. We can't learn everything. But I do think our novel is important, because it is written in a way, fiction in a genre that hopefully uh, keeps a greater number of readers um, engaged and wanting to to have that page turner
0: right. And Connie, before we go to to uh, kind of what's happening with the war fever in Japan and how that relates to Kent's family, I thought we could we could read an excerpt. There are diary entries from Ruby, the character at the center of this, while she's in the Arkansas camp. And I thought maybe you would read one. This is from May 30th, 1944. What else do you want to say to to set up this excerpt real
1: quick? Sure. This is from the Tule Lake chapter. Oh, she's not in Arkansas.
0: I'm sorry about that. Okay,
1: thanks. Yeah. In this chapter, Ruby and her family have recently relocated to the Tule Lake, California High Security Segregation Center from Jerome, Arkansas. Dear Diary, they closed school this afternoon to remember and honor the service personnel who died while serving in the armed forces. Beyond the gates, I imagine families are enjoying fried chicken and potato salad picnics, attending parades and visiting grave sites of loved ones. But in here, we are one day closer to resuming the lives we took for granted, hopefully anyway. We're totally out of touch with the outside world. How do people adapt to the daily routines of being stuck inside these fences? It's weird, but some do. I won't, not ever. Time and space have changed, and yet many of the kids in my high school act as though everything's okay. I guess they've accepted being locked up and it doesn't bother them, nincompoops. But frustration grows outside of school. They assigned additional troops here and soldiers are everywhere, inside and outside of the fences. The real thugs with loyalty to, to Japan have become violent and beat up and harassed those loyal to America. I see bloodied men lying in the dirt, or making their way home beaten and battered after being terrorized. I hope Father stays out of it all. I think he will. He's busy with his art and poetry and sermon writing. I don't get why he's writing sermons he might never deliver again. One thing I know for sure, I won't get used to being stuck in this dark chapter. I am an American, and they stole my freedom from me. We're not in here for our own protection. We're in here because our leaders got entangled in hysteria and trampled on our civil liberties. To hell with complacency. I want out. Ruby Ishimaru. Uh,
0: Constance Matsumoto, along with her husband Kent, uh, Constance reading from their new novel of White Ashes, Ken, okay. Here's something I didn't know about this part of American history, which is that the U.S. Army begins to recruit within the internment camps, and they require the enlistees to fill out questionnaires that tries to determine their loyalty to the United States, even though it's obvious that the U.S. really has no loyalty to them. Would you what? Tell me uh, about delving a little bit uh, into the historical documents to kind of see how people felt about this
2: the uh, the question is one that has been written about a lot and that is the loyalty questionnaire mm-hmm. I, I I will ask Connie to to fill in after I speak here because the loyalty questionnaire was an uh, it, it was a document that you almost you almost couldn't get right, right. If that as, as that sounds correct, um, and it really was, it put a lot of the Americans and certain a handful of other of the uh, incarcerees in a bind because one of the questions was, will you uh, forsake your lo- loyalty to Japan? And that has a lot of implication there because my grandfather, for example, he was not an American; he was a Japanese citizen, but. Were he to, to uh, forswear his loyalty to Japan, he would be stateless. He would not have a country. He's mm-hmm. not an American, and he's renouncing his, his loyalty to Japan. But it was because of that questionnaire, that uh, there were two in particular, that he was um, labeled or identified as someone who was at higher risk, and hence the move from Jerome, Arkansas, to Tule Lake, where the security was even higher there because of, of of folks who were deemed to be at risk to the mm-hmm. United States.
0: Mm-hmm. Connie, would you want to add to that?
1: The only thing that I would add is that the, the questions even appeared to be trick questions to the Japanese Americans in the camp. So, for example, that particular question around "Will you forswear loyalty to the Emperor of Japan?" these people never had loyalty to Japan. Hmm. And so the, the belief was that by answering, yes, I'll forswear it, that they had a loyalty to begin with. Right. So yeah, Kent's right. I, you know, many of these people felt there was no right answer to these questions. And the other question had to do with a willingness to serve how can you serve the United States when you're not a citizen, like Kent's grandfather? Mm -hmm. And then if you are a citizen, how willing are you going to be to serve if your family is going to remain incarcerated as they did, which I think gets to your comment leading into this conversation? Yeah. Kent, so tell
0: us a little bit about how much you actually know about the part of your family that remained in Japan as the attack on Pearl Harbor occurs, and then everything that follows. How much do you know?
2: Not a lot. Okay. Not a lot, both factually. But I do remember, and these are going back to my childhood, uh, because we would visit Hiroshima, and I, I do still have two cousins who live there with their families. They're mm. my age now, and my aunt, who's who's still alive there. Um, but there, there's a rich family history there in Hiroshima as well. In fact, my um, grandparents, if I could take you back and your listeners back just a bit further in time, they they were actually were up, up in, uh, they were from Hiroshima, my grandparents were, mm-hmm. and uh, in Wyoming, and they had a laundry business for the Chinese railroad road workers. Hmm. It wasn't until my grandfather um, got ill, that they moved to Los Angeles, where my father was born, so mm-hmm. he was born in Los Angeles and therefore an American citizen by birth on the soil but they they the grand, my grandparents moved back to Hiroshima their their home to to uh, so that my f- grandfather could receive medical care and also to take care of my great grandparents who were still in Hiroshima. And it was then – and that's what caused my father to then be raised in Hiroshima, but raised um, even though he was an American citizen, but raised in militaristic Japan. Mm -hmm.
0: You know, uh, Kent and Connie, I I thought about your book uh, as I was following the coverage earlier this spring from Hiroshima that the leaders Mm -hmm. of the world's uh, yeah, I I thought this was interesting Mm -hmm. that the world's most powerful democracies, the leaders were gathering – in this place that is really linked inextricably with the horror of war. And um, and did you both see what the Japanese prime minister uh, said about the purpose of being there? May, I'll recap this for mm-hmm. our listeners, but then you can weigh in here. Uh, the Japanese prime minister told the Associated Press, I believe the first step toward any nuclear disarmament effort is to provide a firsthand experience of the consequences of the atomic bombing, and to firmly convey the reality. You know, Ken, I thought that was so interesting because this does, I know to many people, seem like distant, distant mm-hmm. history, and yet this is alive and real for this, this leader of, of Japan, so, so give me some insight on, on how you see that. I,
2: I do think he's spot on. And it, it, what the, the um, denizens of Hiroshima do try and do every year is commemorate those lives. And it's, it's very moving. Uh, there's a lot of lanterns. There's a lot of peace, um, if you will, capital P, peace efforts mm-hmm. uh, that go underway so that, to, so that the world doesn't forget. And we would love for our book to be a part of that dimension that you just read from the quote of the feelings, of the imagine what it would be like in today's world were a nuclear bomb were to explode, which at least from what little I know is, you know, 10 multiple times more destructive than what exploded in 1945. So the horrors of nuclear war are very much here. In fact, one could argue they're even more prevalent now mm-hmm. than they were back then. And that's what makes, we hope, our book um, something that's meaningful for those who do want to um, avoid a nuclear showdown.
0: I, I thought I would play uh, a little bit of President Truman's mm-hmm. address after the atomic bomb has been dropped. Um Let's listen to the way he phrases what has happened. Here, here we go.
1: The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new
2: and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces.
0: Connie, what do you think when you hear that?
1: That they got what they deserved, mm-hmm. and that more is coming. Mm-hmm. Very, very threatening. No acknowledgement at all to the um, the the mass murder of thousands and thousands of innocent people and children.
0: Yeah, Kent. How about you? What What do you hear about the way President Truman phrased that?
2: I agree with Connie's sentiments about the words as I heard them, but as you were playing that tape, which I don't remember hearing, um, but it was, thank you for, for playing it, Carrie. But what struck me as you were playing that recording was my father's words. And I, I don't think I'm wrong here, but when, when I did speak with my father, and I know Connie did as well, about what were his feelings to have a bomb explode over his head, mm-hmm. and his words, and I think this is an accurate quote, his words were, war is war, hmm. and it's it's very d- dispassionate, you know, very far removed, because he was there for crying out loud, but he said, war is war, and um, that's always stuck with me, by the way, and, and Connie and I are fascinated by his, his outlook. Now, whether he meant that, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's, uh, he'll, nobody will ever know, I don't think. But I just, I just find it odd that to hear what you played for us just now, President Truman's words, and then for me to feel and hear my father's voice, words, war is war, in, in the other side of my brain.
0: Connie, how do you interpret what Kent's father meant by that?
1: I think that people who have have gone through horrible, traumatic um, incidents, the the trauma uh, is experienced in each person differently. And I, I believe that Kent's father meant that. War is war. Because he believed the story that he was told that it was necessary. And he, he told me that, mm-hmm. you know, it was necessary to save millions of lives. And, and that was the rationale for, for doing it. Was that true? Who knows? But there's, there's a lot of disagreement around whether or not it was necessary, but I think it was his way of being able to accept something that he couldn't change. Mm-hmm and to just lay it on the shoulders of something that's war, that is obscure. It's not a person, it's not a race, it's not a country that would allow him to move on in his life. It reminds me of of a story that Kent told about visiting the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum with his father many times, Count. will you share that one story about when your dad didn't go inside?
2: Sure. As I said, uh, Carrie, we lived in Tokyo, so we would visit my aunt and uncle at the time and my cousins in Hiroshima. And my father, I remember taking him taking us to the museum along with my cousins, and we toured the museum. And it's, it's very, very powerful. It's also very graphic. Mm. Um, in the years following, as I became an adult and I went back um, with my children, so his grandchildren, my father did not go into the museum and his reasoning at the time was, ah, oh, I've seen that before. And it was in that tone of voice as well, carried.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Honestly, at the time, I just thought he didn't want to pay admission uh, for another admission. <laughs> yeah. But as I, as we jumped into the novel and, and dove into this and I, then I started to feel the same things that he may have felt, you know, from a distance, you know, a generation mm-hmm. later, I can see why he didn't want to go in. You know, why would you want to replay mm-hmm. what you lived through? So, very, very powerful. Meant nothing to me at the time, Carrie. When he said, oh, "I've seen that before," mm-hmm. um, now it has a completely different meaning.
0: Yeah. When I hear that, I guess I think the scale of the ravages of war are mm-hmm. so vast. It's, you know, it, it's. Mm-hmm even though he's got a personal experience with it, it, it's kind of beyond our grasp, I guess. It
2: is, it is. And and I don't want to lose sight, Carrie, for those listening, that we have wars today as we're sitting here and talking with you. And so I'm not trying to equate all, all wars as what my father went through. This is what he went through. This is our fictionalized account of what he may have felt at the time. And to be clear, sort of what we would like our readers to take away, your listeners, if they were to read the book, is to feel and to fear the power of nuclear destruction, knowing that the power is is tenfold today, and also to imagine what it must have been like to be unjustly arrested for no other reason other than your race or or your your ethnicity.
0: You know, I wondered if, um, I didn't know what your timeline for writing the book was, Connie, but I wondered if um, you were in the midst of it when Russia invaded Ukraine, and then and then the specter of, you know, and I think that's diminished a bit now. But what what will Putin do if he really feels backed into a corner? What was that in the background in some ways as you both as you were working on the book?
1: Not while writing it, because the book was already. Finished and was with the publisher, okay. being uh, fashioned into a, a real book. What occurs to you, though? About, I mean, as Kent is
0: saying, here we have these these fears and questions never go completely away, do they? It takes one one invasion from a country like Russia to raise all of the fears again that surround this
1: yeah and and they are they're certainly raising fear in in my heart Mm -hmm. i um i'm terrified what he is willing to do and what he might do i don't think that the threat has ever been greater the the, um university of chicago some scientists from there developed this doomsday clock and right now it's it's 90 seconds to midnight and Hmm. midnight means Uh, nuclear catastrophe. And it's the closest that we've ever been there. To put that in context, it was 17 minutes to midnight back in 1991. So it's a very scary time. It's a time to think about peace in a different way than, you know, just peace in your family or peace with your neighbor, Um, you know, but and a peace sign. Mm. The world is so big. And what is our responsibility to help Uh, generate peace across the world to tolerate differences in our own backyard and to do our best to reduce the risk of this happening again. Kent,
0: I had a question about reparations. Um, I'm interested in what you think of the reparations that the U.S. government paid to, also the apologies that have been delivered, but the reparations that the U.S. government paid to people who were incarcerated.
2: Oh boy, Carrie! What a what a timely question in the sense that um, there's reparation discussions going mm-hmm. on right now, right. as you may know. But yep. if I may take you back uh, to my mother when she was alive, and she and her family did receive twenty thousand dollars and the apology, um, I remember distinctly, Carrie, distinctly my mother not wanting to personally benefit profit, if you will, from that money. And what she did is she donated the money to um, the rebuilding of her father, my grandfather's temple on the island of Hawaii, in uh, the Waimea, which as it turned out was destroyed by Hurricane Iniki back in the early 90s. Hmm. And so she, uh, I guess she Deposited the money, but then she immediately wrote a check for the same amount and and donated it to the church, so that money went full circle. Uh, because don't forget, as soon as my as soon as the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, my grandfather was arrested. The temple, which had been ministering to um, the congregation of Japanese um, sugar plantation workers, had to shut down. And we've since visited the temple, which of course has been completely rebuilt, but it did give me great. Satisfaction, Carrie, to revisit the temple back in Waimea, and know that um, some of that rebuilding monies came from my mother.
0: But overall, Kent, what do you think of the idea of it?
2: I, I think it's it's a gesture, and mm-hmm. I think to so as not to throw cold water over anything. I think gestures are important. Uh, you'll never please all of the people all of the time. Uh, But for me, I I think it is certainly the right, it was the right thing to do under the circumstances.
0: The novel is titled Of White Ashes, uh, co-written by Constance and Kent Matsumoto. Thank you both for a really interesting conversation. Thank you.
2: Time went by so quickly. Thank you for your time.
1: Carrie, thank you so much for reading and for your time and for this opportunity. We really appreciate it.
0: Looking for your next great read? The Thread's long-running Ask a Bookseller series is now a podcast. One book, two minutes every week. Listen Saturday mornings on NPR News or anytime on your podcast app.